0: Welcome to episode 96 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell. I'm a family doc and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus.
1: I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm
2: John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of
3: Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, another family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. We are recording on, yes, Groundhog Day, a great movie, by the way. Um, and It's a tradition in the U.S. that dates back to the late 1800s, but is actually based on a German tradition that goes all the way back to the 16th century. Um I heard that the uh, Punxsutawney Phil saw his shadow today. And yes, you guessed it. That means at least six more weeks of COVID.
0: Thanks, Henry, uh, for all that good news on this podcast. We highlight poems, patient-oriented evidence that matters. If you want all of them, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem every day in your email, plus a great primary care reference. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators in this Podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can also get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for listening to the podcast uh, or any previous podcast. Just go to IFP.com and click on their IFP education webpage and look for our podcast. This week, the safety of Janus kinase inhibitors, Midodrine for recurrent vasovagal syncope, Empaglifazin for heart failure, not diabetes, and Peppermint Oil for irritable bowel. Kate, hey, why don't you get us started?
1: Yeah, we're really going to run the gamut today, aren't we, of uh, yes. topics. and uh Yeah, so I had some weird deja vu when I saw this study in the New England Journal recently because I had read the same study as an FDA press release when I was prepping for some of our live courses. So Janus kinase inhibitors may not seem like sort of core family medicine topics, but they're gaining indications Uh, and we're going to see them for more and more things. So originally they were indicated only for sort of severe rheumatoid arthritis or severe inflammatory bowel disease that wasn't responsive to TNF inhibitors. And they're very appealing to patients because unlike the TNF inhibitors, they can be taken orally rather than only being injectable. And more recently, like I was mentioning, they've been approved for conditions just like cutaneous psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. So again, we're seeing more and more of them. And at the same time they were gaining indications, the FDA was asking for more safety indication or information from those original indications. And this study reports on the post-approval safety data requested by the FDA. So there may be some imp- implications for these new indications as well. So this study was a randomized, it was open-label, non-inferiority trial of about 4,500 patients. All over 50, they all had ra- uh, active uh, rheumatoid arthritis. They were already taking methotrexate. So they were randomized to tofacitinib, 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams, or to a TNF inhibitor. They followed these patients for about 40 months, and they were looking at either major cardiovascular events or the incidence of cancers other than non-melanoma skin cancers. So first off, they did an interim safety analysis and they found that there was a higher incidence of both pulmonary embolism and mortality in patients who were on that 10 milligram dose. And so they actually discontinued that arm of the trial early and converted all of those patients to a 5 milligram dose. So the 10 milligram dose isn't available, so I'm not going to say a lot more about it. The final intention to treat analysis found an increased risk of both MACEs and non-melanoma skin cancers in patients taking the Janus kinase inhibitors, and the, the higher dose conferred more risk, as I, as I mentioned. They calculated a number needed to treat to harm of about 113 over five years for one additional MACE at that 5-milligram dose, and the number needed to treat to harm for over five years for one additional cancer was 55 also at the 5-milligram dose. Other adverse effects that were more common in the tofacitinib group were uh, herpes infections as well as other opportunistic infections. The bottom line here is that, again, they may have their place in the treatment of immune mediated conditions, but the benefits have to be mediated against what uh, do appear to be an increase in cardiovascular, cardiovascular neoplastic and infectious risks. And it's important to remember that this was a trial that was comparing them to the TNF inhibitors, which... In and of themselves, appear to have an increase in in both neoplastic and infectious risk. So, uh, Henry, what do you think about these Janus kinase inhibitors?
3: Oh, yeah, 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 So, this all seems pretty complicated. Uh, I think we talked about a while back uh, about the name that uh, these were originally called JAK, J-A-K, for just another kinase, because when they did the studies, they found a whole boatload of them, and uh, the the Janus kinase. Um, Got the name after the Roman god, the two-headed god of beginnings and endings, and sort of reflecting our dual nature, the duality of humans. Well, the 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 molecule itself has two nearly identical. Uh, uh, components, uh, one which actually expresses kinase activity and the other one that down regulates itso- itself. So it has that, that really neat component to it. So this duality is reflected in exactly what you were just presenting, by the way, that there are some potential benefits and some potential harms. And to me, this uh, is the perfect place for shared decision-making. And if primary care clinicians are going to be involved in prescribing this, we're going to need to have good tools to be able to communicate effectively these uh, benefits and harms to our patients. John. Hey,
2: John? what do you think? Well put, Henry. Not, not much to add to that, but this seems typical of newer drugs where we first hear about the positive effects And it takes some time then and some surveillance to figure out what the downside is. So this is not atypical that we're now finding out about the downside of some of these newer biological agents.
0: Yeah, good for the FDA for continuing to push for this data. Very often a drug is approved and they, with the proviso that they have post-marketing Uh, you know, research done and then the drug companies never do it. There really aren't any teeth in that. So uh, at least we do have some of this data. But yeah, marketing, the marketers will always want you to expand the potential market for a drug and to, to, you know, sort of less and less severe conditions, and we have to be cautious of that. Henry, tell us about your quiz today.
3: My quiz asks the question, which of the following statements about deprescribing is true? A, the existing research is robust and of high quality. B, few resources exist to guide clinicians and patients in the deprescribing process. C, symptom relapse or medication resumption is common. D, adverse events are infrequent. Stay tuned.
0: We will stay tuned, but we're also going to stay tuned for your poem, which is coming up next.
3: I picked this one because I am a vagal responder myself. And I remember back in medical school first year, I fainted watching a delivery, Um, and it was a film of a delivery. So (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't even the real thing. (laughs) So this is a a study uh, by Sheldon and colleagues published in October in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it asks the question, can midadrine decrease recurrent episodes of vasovagal syncope? They enrolled just over 130 adults who had vagal vasovagal sim, uh, syncope. They had to have at least uh, two faints in the previous year, and it turns out the median was six, so these were people who were truly sensitive, and they couldn't have any other known cause of syncope like aortic stenosis or orthostatic hypotension. And they were randomized to receive either three times a day placebo or midadrine, five milligrams. And they were taken during daylight hours. And then they escalated the dose if it was tolerated up to 10 milligrams three times a day. The participants were relatively young, under 35, and were evenly split male and female. So this kind of reinforces that this is probably not your simple orthostatic hypertension that's much more common in the elderly. After a year, just under 60% of the active treatment group were syncope-free compared with about 39% in the placebo group. So that translates into a number needed to treat of about five. Now, this got kind of interesting because they did a subset analysis. And for all of the participants who had at least one um, syncopal episode during that study period, the rates were the same, about three and a half episodes per year. Now, I did a little bit more snooping into the paper. I, did not auth- I was not the author of this poem. Um, our friend um, Alan Shaughnessy was. And what they found was that there's a figure in there that it looks like the effects are apparent uh, within the first one to two months and fully apparent uh, by four to six months. And then there was just a recent systematic review in Europace that identified seven studies that all had similar results. It's relatively cheap, 30 to $70 a month at goodrx.com, and fairly well-tolerated. Most of the side effects are paresthesias and, and the like, and occurring in less than 20% of the individuals. So it either works or it doesn't. Um, it may be worth a trial, although, frankly, given the high rate of response in the placebo, I would encourage you to enroll your patients into a clinical
0: trial. Mark? Yeah. Yeah, or give them that placebo. But yeah, I think it's it's a nice one for a trial because if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, just stop it. If they keep having syncable episodes, no reason to continue it. Kate?
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's certainly something that, because of the the high response rate, it's and and the high tolerability, certainly worth a shot. And something that otherwise can be kind of you know embarrassing at best and <sighs> dangerous at worst. You don't want to be passing out at an, you know at an inopportune time. Um, So I I think I'd I'd give it a shot.
0: Agreed. Okay, we'll give it a shot. All right, my turn. Um, I'm going to talk about empaglifazin and whether it improves outcomes for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine, 2021, uh, volume 385, page 1451, if you want to read along. So the question is, does the sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitor empaglifazin safely improve outcomes for patients with heart failure who have a preserved ejection fraction. So this was an industry-sponsored trial. They found a bunch of patients with class two through four heart failure, an ejection fraction of at least 40%, and an elevated NT-proBNP. So they randomized about 6,000 to empaglifazin, 10 milligrams once a day, or placebo. The groups looked the same at the beginning of the study. The average age was about 72 years. About half had diabetes, but half didn't. 82% had class two heart failure. So that was, uh, it was mostly in the mild to moderate range of heart failure. Uh, the analysis was by intention to treat. About 80% of the patients completed the trial uh, at the end of uh, just over two years. So the primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death or hospitalization due to heart failure. I'll let you guess which one is the more important outcome. Hospitalization for heart failure occurred less often in patients who got embiglyphosin. About, NNT was about 59 per year, 4.3 versus six episodes per 100 person years. So definitely some benefit there. In an exploratory, exploratory subgroup analysis, the benefit was greater for those that had lower ejection fractions. So they <clears throat> divided them up into 40 to 50, 50 to 60, 60 and higher in terms of percent ejection fraction. Those in the 40 to 50 group had a greater benefit. No significant difference though in the likelihood of cardiovascular death or all-cause mortality, no difference in any renal outcomes. And there was, and the reason in part there was no difference in all-cause mortality, there are 20 extra non-cardiovascular deaths in the empoglyphosin group usually due to infection or sepsis, compared to 25 fewer cardiovascular deaths in the treatment, in the placebo group. So that's, I'm sorry, in the, in the epigliphysin group. So fewer cardiovascular deaths, but more non-cardiovascular deaths. And that makes sense biologically. Uh, it does make you pee out sugar, which can lead to ural sepsis. And they did find more hypotension and also genital infections in the epigliphysin group. So bottom line, In patients with heart failure, whether or not they had diabetes, uh, who had a preserved ejection fraction, empaglifazin does reduce the likelihood of hospitalization, but with no effect on cardiovascular or all-cause mortality. The cost, if you go to GoodRx, is $529 a month in the U.S. It's $82 a a month in Canada. So uh, it's just a short ride across the Ambassador Bridge to get to Canada if you're in Detroit. So you may want to look at that. In the U.S., the drug is, you know, based on that amount, wildly non-cost effective. It would cost over $350,000 to prevent one hospitalization. In Canada, it would be about $58,000. So still a lot, but maybe a little closer to cost effective. Um, John, what do you think?
2: Well, these drugs, these SGL2 inhibitors have become quite popular, of course, for treating diabetes. And uh, no question, they have some positive effects regarding cardiovascular outcomes. But looking at the numbers needed to treat, it's it's just, they're not impressive drugs, I guess I would say. The numbers needed to treat are are fairly high to obtain positive effects. This is one of many trials of these drugs, looking at a variety of cardiovascular outcomes, but they will continue to be used. And I so I think it's important for family physicians to be familiar with them. To know how to use them and to have a really good sense of what they can do and what they can't do.
0: Sounds good, Kate.
1: Yeah, so I think was this the trial that it looks like it included people who both did and did not have diabetes, and they were looking at yeah, diabetes. Yeah. yeah, at the heart failure outcomes, um, and you know, in people who do have diabetes, it's it's a little bit more clear cut, and so you know, I think this was it's it's obviously not quite as impressive. In people who who don't have have diabetes, and I think that's the I I think as we study it more, honestly, it's going to get less impressive, um, and not more impressive. Uh, But for people who who have diabetes, you know, I think we're going to start to look at at things more like is it true? You know, is it a class effect, or are there there some drugs that are are more effective than others? Um, And then I'm going to be really interested in sort of the the real world. impacts of, you know, when we start to see, like, uh, do people run into trouble with with being able to access the meds? And does that affect, you know, some of our our cost effectiveness and some of our, you know, does that obviously diminish the, the, the benefits that people could otherwise get from them?
0: Well spoken. Well spake. Um, as we had Burns Day is coming up, just passed. And so Robert Burns, I don't know if anybody look him up. Um And we, we get together with friends and read poem, read Robert Burns poems and drink scotch. And um, the the highest praise is to say, "Well spake." Uh, <laughs> total non sequitur. John, tell us about peppermint oil. Let's shift topics here.
2: Yes, I have been studying essential oils for the past year in preparation for our in in person talks this year for our conferences. So I have a a long list of essential oil uh, topics, and one of them is, in fact, IBS and essential oils, and peppermint oil would be considered one of the essential oils, which is perhaps a little bit more mainstream than the other essential oils. But at any rate, in this particular study, the investigators were checking to see if peppermint oil can be effective in alleviating symptoms in people with moderate to severe irritable bowel syndrome. Now, this was a good double-blind randomized trial. The authors randomized 133 adults with moderate to severe IBS, and they used a a good research tool, the IBS severity scoring system. And so they randomized these patients to receive either three times a day, 180 milligrams of enteric-coated capsules or placebos, and they studied symptoms at the end of six weeks. Now, unfortunately, the study had a large dropout rate, uh, 25% of all the participants dropped out, and a full 35% in the intervention group, so more in the intervention group. But it seems like a high dropout rate. I don't know why there was such a high dropout rate. But these high dropout rates tend to favor the intervention, by the way, so just keep that in mind. Now, both groups did show improvement in their IBS scores the mean improvement was a bit better for placebo compared to peppermint oil, but there was no statistically significant difference. And there were more GI side effects or complaints, let's say, whether they were side effects of the medication or not. I I tend to doubt it because peppermint oil, 72% complained of GI side effects and 51% in the placebo group. So these people have IBS, so they're going to have continued GI complaints. So at any rate, this was quite a negative study for peppermint oil. It really didn't work. Now I've I've looked at seven pretty decent randomized trials of peppermint oil and the first one was published in 2007. So this is not a new concept. And all of these have used this sustained release type of enteric coated peppermint oil. So they, they've all used the same basic kind of formula. The initial two or three studies look promising. But the last three studies, which I think are probably the better studies, all have shown no positive effect for peppermint oil. So it's not looking good, I would say, for peppermint oil for IBS. Though keep in mind, there have been a couple of studies of peppermint oil for babies with colic. And there has been a a small but positive effect of peppermint oil for colic. So, So it appears that for adults, though, however, with IBS, it is not going to be effective. Wow, wow.
1: <laughs> so, you know, with peppermint oil, one of my biggest questions has always been their ability to mask it, um, and I've always had the same concern with uh, with fish oil, because even if you've got an enteric coated, you know, a similar appearing, um, you know, capsule. The, once it's in the GI tract, I really feel like, you know, at that first peppermint belch, the same as with that first like fish belch, you really know what yes. group you've been assigned to. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I ask this question a lot that even if you're if you're if you've been assigned, you know, it's a, it's a, a placebo controlled, it's a blinded study to, to ask the participants, what group do you think you've been assigned to? Um, and to see how many of them you know can accurately guess uh what group what group they've been assigned to um and just to see you know if if people can guess correctly which group they're in and how that affects their the the study outcomes cuz my my best guess is that people can can guess that they're taking that they've been assigned to a to an active group and that that they can you know th- that that will influence how they interpret their results and they sort of like well i'm better i'm not better Um, And as you say, you know, there are people with IBS and peppermint oil can have effects on the on the GI tract. So uh, this isn't so surprising to me. But yeah,
0: that's a great point. Henry?
3: Yeah, so. Uh, I did this original poem, and I don't recall the authors reporting anything about patients' ability to determine whether or not they got the placebo or not. Um, my, My second question, by the way, John, is how do you get babies to swallow those capsules? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, they don't.
3: They don't use the capsules. They just use the
2: liquid. <laughs> so.
3: Yeah, and and the other thing that about this was that they, all, while they were conducting this double blind trial, they also had an open label trial. And my big question was why? Why would yeah. you do that? Why would you do both? And I don't know any data f- from the open label trial unless these individuals had some vested interest in trying to report a positive outcome.
0: No, I think I mean you know I'll I'll defend them and say that one reason to do that is to see is there a placebo effect, or to what extent is there a placebo effect, right? You're combining you're comparing placebo to nothing to open label. And that has been shown, and there is such a thing as a placebo effect, particularly for conditions where it's a subjective outcome. So, you know, I'm mm-hmm. going to toss them the benefit of the doubt on that. All
2: right. But
0: yeah, this was is
2: government-sponsored. It was not a, this was not an industry-sponsored trial. Yeah, good. Yep. So, yeah,
0: they were, they were you know, legitimately trying to see, was there a placebo effect as well? And, you know, I think it's just a great marketing. Whoever came up with the term essential oils for something that's completely not essential.
1: <laughs> um, I think <laughs> it's more like the of... <laughs> Yeah.
0: So anyway, all right, uh, let's go to the quiz answer about deprescribing.
3: Which of the following statements about deprescribing is true? A, the existing research is robust and of high quality. B, few resources exist to guide clinicians and patients in the process. C, symptom relapse or medication resumption is common. D, adverse events are infrequent. So there was a 2018 systematic review that identified 27 randomized trial um, with study sizes between 20 and 2,500 participants. So lots of data, but only 10 were of high quality, so not terribly robust, if you will. And I just checked PubMed, by the way, and, and the Cochrane, and there was a systematic review in December 2021 20, uh, that only included 14 papers, and I didn't find anything in the Cochrane. So this 2018 study looks like it's probably our, our most robust data. So, the success rate of prescribing was about 50%, at least, in more than half of the studies. Now, there were some studies that looked at relapse, and of the nine that did, five found that symptom relapse or medication resumption was higher in the intervention group, but was only from 14 to 50%. So, that glass was clearly less than half full. The really good news is that adverse events were infrequent. And there are some great resources to guide clinicians and patients. Deprescribing.org is freely available. It's got lots of links to resources, including the Stop Frail tool, which is the most widely thing. And we've actually talked about this um, in the past. My own personal favorite resource is MedStopper.com, which has a nifty tool that helps you prioritize which medication to consider stopping first. And additionally, if you go to YouTube and enter MedStopper, these uh. uh Uh, This team actually created a really catchy music video that's a riff on the Beatles' day tripper. So the correct answer is D, adverse events are infrequent.
0: Thanks. And we just had a great poem uh, recently about stopping antidepressants, which was consistent with this, that, you know, a little less than half, you know, some people did quite well and some people didn't, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to deprescribe. And I think we should, as family physicians, take pride in making sure our, our patients are on the right number of medications and not taking too many. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us here at Primary Care Update. Thank you, Kate, John, and Henry. Here's the EARL for getting CME credit, iafp.com. Click on their IAFP Education webpage. The IFP is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for one half Category 1 AMA credit. They adhere to the conflict of interest policy, the me and the AMA. You can read the complete disclosure on their website. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, share us on social media. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.
2: She was a med stopper. Yes. <laughs> One way ticket. Yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving that in.